0: I'll just use this time to say one student expressed concerns about the number of flannel shirts that I have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't say who. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I try to do a count, and I don't even know. Like, not that I can't count to four or five or maybe six, <laughs> but it's that I don't care. There comes a point in your life, sometime after leaving junior high or maybe halfway through high school, um, when you no longer concern yourself entirely with the number of times, okay. um, that's not even possible. I know. Um, I, think, I think I did tell you guys that there was a time in which a student who was sitting right about here, but not this year, looked at me and said, "This is Monday morning. Didn't you just wear that shirt last week?" And I thought, "Didn't I leave these years?" like way way back somewhere if it was up to me i would have my favorite shirt which is i won't tell you which one and i would only wear it and maybe change the shirt underneath it but leave it the same color all right um we're gonna uh we're gonna get going um with with a really fun course that that uh, dates back to just before we started the school of ministry We had an internship program uh, that grew into the school of ministry. The internship program had gone from one student up to about 14. And uh, we were really beginning to see that our our intern students (coughs) needed needed training and further instruction. We had been giving them tasks, but we hadn't really been giving them um, much in the terms of um, of book learning or uh, ongoing discipleship. Um, so we began to, uh, as a staff, uh, share with them in, in, um, in downtime here and there. One of the first things that, um, that we began to do was, was to talk about the need for them to think about how they engage with people outside of the Christian bubble, um, which, which is kind of a, a, a reality here at Ecola. When we transitioned into the, the full school of ministry, and um, we're developing that curriculum. Um, I got to talking to, to Dr. Greg Bohr about this. And, and it just seemed that he was the perfect one to take on this task He's someone who, who in, engages um, uh, popular culture and artistic culture and political culture and, and these other aspects of, of things which, which overlap and, and uh, connect with Christian culture in different ways. But it's very much a week about you thinking about how you interact with those around you but who might not be a part of the bubble um, that, that we as Christians uh, sometimes exist in. You know and love Dr. Greg Bohr and uh, welcome him back to Oklahoma.
1: Yay. And I know and love you and that's fun. It's fun about second year is we've already had a week together and and uh, we can just kind of get on with our friendship, and that's really, really fun. This is a course that really, really interests me, which is why your notes are so thick. Um, <laughs> luckily, the amount of work you have to do is the just the same, filling in and keeping up. And and but if you want to know more, what I've printed for you is with permission some of the stuff that I've read that leads me to the ideas that we're going to talk about this week. So some of you will be interested by it. Um, and some of you might not, and if, and that's okay. So if you're interested and you want to look further, you can. I'm not assigning you the reading. What I'm hoping is that our conversations together will kind of excite you and stimulate you and that you'll really be interested in pursuing this more deeply. So it's a lot of different authors, some Christian, some not Christian, um, who are all um, dealing with this idea of what makes culture and what do we have to do with it as followers of Jesus. That's the whole goal. So... Uh, I think this was the one nice day this week, so it was a great day to drive down here. I hope you enjoyed the day, and let's end it on a, on a high note, uh, and uh, let me open us in prayer. Lord, as we bow before you, we recognize your lordship not just in our own lives, in our own hearts, over our individual wills. We recognize your lordship in all of creation, not just the... Um, natural parts of it, but the human parts of it, the concocted, sometimes tainted parts of it that feel to us like they're lost, like they're gone, like the enemy is in charge of this area and you don't care about it, um, you're done with it, or it's so far outside of your kingdom that it doesn't even show up on your kingdom radar. But we affirm your absolute lordship tonight. We recognize that you are Lord of all and that there's nothing that is outside of your radar, nothing outside of your purview, nothing outside of your sovereign will. And so as we engage this week on different aspects of (coughs) the world around us, I pray, Lord, that you would excite our hearts by your spirit. Give us the wisdom of your spirit and um, help us to know what our role is and how we fit in. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 17 as we get started. And this is, in context, and I'm sure you already know this, Um, having been here for a whole year, you probably have your Bible memorized. Uh, (laughs) Right? Um, If people say that to me, I've now finished a a doctorate in theology, and people are like, so how many times have you read the Bible? It's like, not how many times is how deep you go, right? Amen. Uh, So John 17 is Jesus, what we call high priestly prayer. It's his prayer for his followers, and by extension, he says, everyone who, believe, who will believe in me because of their message. So us too, through generations and generations of followers, it gets to us. And this is what he says in verse 13, or actually someone else read it. I have new contacts in, so, and they're like this, so I might just start looking at you like a pirate, um, because this one is not quite... Perfect for reading yet. So if I look at it. Anyway, somebody read from verse 13, John 17.
0: Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word and the the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong in this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I will give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by
1: your truth. Perfect. What translation is that? New and living. So Jesus is praying for them because he recognizes they he's leaving, they're staying. And he's hoping that they'll receive encouragement and power and a sense of purpose in his closing words. So from John 15, 16, 17, and 18, He's really preparing them for his departure. And he said some stuff, and then he just kind of, I just picture him bringing them really close, and then he starts praying for them. I kind of picture him walking around, putting his arms around each one, and just kind of blessing them and saying, God, here's my prayer for them. Because they're not leaving. They're staying. And I'm not praying that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them in the midst of this world. We are not of this world, but we are still in this world. And because of God's word and we've received God's word and we've been transformed by his spirit, there's this lack of understanding, this lack of connection. And we can either perpetuate that and get more and more distant, or we can figure out what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. And so I use this word to help describe that. We're kind of in between. We're kind of stuck between two places. We're citizens of heaven, living in the world, We are um, not of this world, but we live here. And we don't want to just be weird uh, because that seems to discredit the testimony we have. But we can't fit in completely because that tends to discredit our moral standing. So what does it mean for us to live in between? And my hope is this week, as we look at different aspects of the culture around us, we can find our place in in in-betweenness and what it means to live in the in-between spots, because they're so important. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he lived here as an in-betweener. He was 100% God, 100% man, and he came and perfectly demonstrated that and lived in this in-between space. He wasn't completely of this world, but he was no longer completely of heaven, just like you. So we're in this in-between spot. So what I want to focus on as we're doing this is this, the redemptive nature of being in between. That the prayer that Jesus prayed for his apostles is that there would be some effect in them staying. That they were set apart, sanctified, set apart. You heard translation said, be made holy. But the idea of holy is different. Listen to me carefully. The idea of holy is not more righteous. It's not better than. It's not louder than Josh's truck. It's, it's, <laughs> the nature of holy is just different. The fact that God is holy is that he is completely different. He's not on the top of a stack. He's not the best of the best. He's completely other. He's completely holy. And in our likeness to his difference, we become holy. So we are different in this world. And that sometimes means that we can be hated. But it also means we can make a what? Difference in this world. If we're just like everybody else, we won't make any difference. But if we're different than everybody else, we stand a chance of making a difference. And that's what I'm hoping for in our time together. So as we start talking about what culture is, I have a couple of questions. I think they're actually in your notes. But I'd like you to just start with the first one. Don't move on. And just, it looks like you're mostly in little trios, which I don't know if there are any singers, but that'd be really fun if you could put a little piece together for us through the week. Um, but if you could just talk in your little triads and your little duet back there about this first word, <laughs> this first word. No, there, he's, he's there. Austin's right there. He can just lean over and be part of it right kind of like there. <laughs> <laughs> so austin walked up and was like my son is how tall are you oh yeah my, my son's like 6 3 but i was like oh yep just like looking at one of my boys um let's talk about this what is secular culture so just talk about it together and then we'll bring our ideas back and see how we do in defining what this means this is our starting place we're talking about christianity and secular, secular culture what does this mean okay Got it wired? You guys got it wired? Or, oh. (laughs) You're the looks? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how it goes. I'll come over here and cover it for you. That so looks very comfortable to me.
0: I need to go back to last and get my polar bear. All right. All right.
1: So what are some of the big ideas we come up with? What is secular culture?
0: Anything other than what the focus of God would be, something that would be
1: unsacred. So you're defining by contrast. So we have culture of God and everything else. Other big ideas? Oh, she raised her hand.
0: her. Um, I would say it's just it's the social norms that exist today the society that we're in and sometimes that does permeate even the church um, but that also stands
1: alone and that also how Christians look at the world right the, 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 our perspective like people wouldn't say they would just say culture right. it's like is Chinese food Chinese food in China or is it just food <laughs> Do you still say, "I want Chinese food they like? You're in China. If you eat here is by definition Chinese food." Right? So people would say, you know, like I just belong to culture, you wouldn't call it secular culture, except from our perspective, it has a flavor to it, a secular flavor. What is that secular flavor? That's and it's Same. not sweet and sour. So <laughs> Other big ideas? Secular culture? Or have we covered all the big ideas? Yeah, and I think it's probably always been that way. I think what makes um, culture flavored in any particular way is what it is that people are chasing. People haven't always been, for example, as materialistic as Western culture in America is. There have been other things, but they were still self-centered. So, is secular nature neutral? Are we on neutral territory? Why is it not neutral? I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. a,
0: bias
1: it, so. a bias? It's an exclusive perspective, even. It's uh, an inability to see any other perspective, any other culture. Okay. So, next in your little triad, what responsibility do followers of Jesus? Have Jesus bear for surrounding secular culture this culture around us ready to go Okay, good. So the first question would be, do we have a responsibility for our surrounding culture? Is that 100 percent? We all agree with that. Anybody disagree? Because you can. Because there's a whole tradition within American Christianity called separatism that basically says, no, we don't. We don't have a responsibility. We just live away from them, and we don't, we're not, we don't have a responsibility for them. OK? Yes?
0: Well, I'm saying, when that perspective, like, oh, we just kind of, like, close ourselves off, isn't that kind of what, like, orthodox Judaism, isn't that, isn't that kind of what that would be like? Like, where you just say, you know, with our responsibility to the culture, we just, we don't interact with culture at all?
1: Separatists don't interact at all. That's the whole idea. Yeah, Anabaptist movements, I mean, anybody give me an up-to-date version of what a separatist looks like? Anybody? The Amish. Amish. Not the mafia, (laughs) but the rest of them. Um, Their whole practice, uh, their whole view of the kingdom of God is to stay separate from the kingdom of this world. So if we're not going to be separate and we're going to stick with the culture, what is our responsibility within the culture? Yes, ma'am what is the great commission so the great commission and this whole sense of redemption and what it means to redeem is culture redeemable how how is a whole culture redeemable Yes, either of you.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, I would say, um, a realization of the need to be redeemed
1: within culture. Yes, they need to realize that they need the to be redeemed. It, it, it could, it could just be, I mean, I think what she's saying is it could just be not working. They could say, what's another way, perchance, for it to work. But I think where we get stuck is, how do you redeem a whole culture? How do you change a whole way of doing things? How do you change the values, the beliefs, the core tenets, the standards, the structures? I mean, when we start talking about a culture, We're not talking about just pop culture and, like, just turn off your TV or something that's that straightforward. I agree we have a responsibility for redemption for culture. But when we start thinking about how do you redeem a whole culture, how does that change? And obviously, go ahead. Start young. Start before they're, like, really broken. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, they heard it and they just went, "Oh, okay," and you you know it like wasn't his best sermon. He was giving it like his F plus effort because he didn't want them to be saved. Arch enemies of Israel. Yeah. So there are two great awakenings. One started in England and the other one started more in uh, America. And the great awakenings were this tidal wave of faith, this tidal wave of awakening, (laughs) this tidal wave of spiritual realities coming to bear. And it did radically change our culture, which interestingly started as a predominantly Puritan movement, our culture did, and it still took an awakening. That's why I didn't call it a raising from the dead. They called it just an awakening. yeah. So let's move down to this one, as we're getting warmed up here now. What words would you use to describe or characterize American Christian culture? In your little threesome? And be positive as well as negative. All right. So let's get at least one word from each triad. We'll start with you, Charlie's Angels, up here in the front. Uh, uh, considerate? considerate? American Christian culture is considerate. Good. Not, not you, I mean, you three. I can point like this. Okay. <laughs> Selectively passionate, right. Yeah. Back row? Uh, well, one word that for hypocritical. hypocritical? I think that's what they would say. I, I think if you ask them, describe Christians, they would probably not say considerate. <laughs> I think of us that way. But I, I'm th- I think hypocritical would come up really quickly. Second?
0: Tolerant?
1: tolerant? Too tolerant. Too tolerant. Like too tolerant? Or put up with too much. Okay. Okay. Internally or externally? Tolerant of surroundings or tolerant in inter, both? Compromised? Sure.
0: That Sure. That's worse than tolerant. Yeah.
1: And you'd go there, Superman? Yeah, Okay. Front row?
0: Nominal, which means? Um, they say that they're Christians, what they but they're, they're not by any way of life. They do the absolute minimum. Well, they, like some people, a lot of people in America, they think that they're Christian because they grandma went to church, yeah. and that's just what they've been told their whole life, and so that's what they
1: go by. Nominal mean, means by name only, and that idea of being nominally Christian in fact, I think that there is like a Christian, an American Christianity, and there's Christianity in America. So American Christian culture. Third wheel, back row.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's okay. You can give us a negative comment. Um, distracted, distracted. Totally agree. Yeah. Apathetic. Apathetic which is without passion, passionate, without passion, yeah, Um, unrecognizable, unrecognizable because,
0: because we blend and we want to make everyone feel as welcome as we can into our services, but in welcoming them, we are welcoming their sin as well, not to change them,
1: so we just look too much like this. Or do we blend in with them because that's just how we are. That's just who we are. I wonder if we blend in because the call away from culture is so uncomfortable that we just actually don't want to do it. That's what I run into. I run into people who just really don't want to change their life. It's like, I want to add Jesus into my life, but I don't want to change everything, like reorganize it around Jesus. So... Good, good words. So our goal is going to be to talk about what we could do with this that would help us do this with this. Okay? And because we're recording this and that didn't make any sense, (laughs) what we're going to try to talk about is what we could do with the American Christian culture that would help us take responsibility for secular culture. I think that's why Jesus left us here. I think there's a reason that when you say yes to Jesus, you're not automatically atomized uh, like in a Star Trek episode and you're demolecularized and then you're reconstituted in heaven. I don't think you just get saved and whooped up into the presence of Jesus because God did not save you just to populate heaven. We're here for a reason. He could have taken his apostles with him. I'm really glad he didn't. Can I get an amen from anybody else? Because if he had taken them, we would not be sitting here. We wouldn't have any of this. And we're this generation. We're the next generation doing this. So that's what we're about. That's what we're doing. Now we're going to get technical. We're going to start talking about the nature of culture and how culture has existed all along. Culture is the combination of values, beliefs, standards, what they call mores or internal practices and cultures just exist. Give me three defining characteristics of the Ecola Bible College culture. Besides flannel. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, besides flannel. Coffee. 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 See, you got an amen. <laughs> this could be a revival. <laughs> <laughs> Fellowship. <laughs> Fellowship, living together all the time.
0: Spring by spring. Spring by oh. spring. Oh, oh, sorry. Ruining. <laughs> One more? Loud. <laughs> loud?
1: It's a loud culture? Compared to the way you grew up, it's very loud? Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, we, I mean, you can describe this culture and you make this culture. You make it what it is. And it's making you. Like, if you came here and everybody liked coffee and you had never really developed a taste for coffee, this would be a perfect time to learn to like coffee. Uh, which happens to a lot of people in college. <laughs> um, that's when you kind, of, you, you kind of figure it out. So it's not that when you came here, people said, look, if you're gonna be here at Nicola, you have to learn to drink coffee. It just bubbles up, literally percolates um, into the culture and then it comes to define the culture. And it really does. Helped uh, immensely by having Sleepy Monk coffee so close. The boost. Um, So as we understand what culture is, I did something chronological here. So beginning at before the Dark Ages, there was a series of empires that ruled the world. Um, This is ancient history. This is like cuneiform pre-recorded history. And it was a history of empires that just individually and sequentially conquered each other and took over, conquered each other and took over. A great example would be the Egyptian empire, not the first, but the first greatest worldwide empire that just literally conquered everybody around them and they were a world empire. And there was a series of those, the Egyptian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Medo-Persian empire, the Greco-Roman empire, There were several empires that just piled up on each other. And then, um, at the fall of the Roman Empire, to barbarians, in essence, all over the Roman Empire, barbarians, if you're German, this is your, I'm, I'm German, so this is our ancestry, the German barbarians defeated Rome. And it was the last world empire. And it inaugurated the Dark Ages. And that was about 500 AD. So obviously I'm talking about when I put history of conquest, I'm just lopping thousands and thousands of years into that. Because they were each very dominant cultures of their own. I want to get us up to ours. So you have the Dark Ages from about 580 to about 1500. Um, AD, and then you have the Enlightenment, or the Renaissance, or the end of the Dark Ages. And nobody said, hey, you know what? These Dark Ages are a drag. Let's, let's have an Enlightenment. Let's have a Renaissance. Let's have, let's have a change. Let's change our music, and our literature, and our architecture. Nobody decided. No, there was no like architect of the Enlightenment. There was no one person that said, I have had it with the Dark Ages. In fact, they didn't call it the Dark Ages. They just lived in this time, and it was recognized as the Dark Ages after the Enlightenment began. The Enlightenment, the Renaissance, for us, it's marked by something like the Reformation. The Reformation is an Enlightenment Renaissance movement, and it was one of those places where the established historical church, the Roman Catholic Church, which was, in the world, the only Christian presence, in the world, in the Western world, um, it, it was strongly impacted by the Reformation, which happened because of this new spirit of renaissance, of rebirth. And it was also the beginning of industrial um, enterprise, marked clearly by, by Gutenberg's printing press. And I'm sure you've put all this together, that if Martin Luther had started 50 years earlier, we wouldn't know anything about him. That the reason we know so much about Martin Luther and his great work of reformation is because Gutenberg made him famous. So you have to know that those things go together by God's perfect design. <laughs> that That's why when Martin Luther wrote a Bible that was for the people, Gutenberg just happened to create the technology that made it cheap enough to be in everybody's hands. So that, that was the birth of the, of the Reformation, which for us, which is a great marker, not the marker, but a great marker of what we mean by Renaissance, a whole change in the way things are being done. And that, let, of course, led us up to the modern West, and I'm skipping over huge epics just for the sake of our understanding of what culture is, brings us to the modern West. And I don't mean like Western boots and, you know, Riding horses, I mean the Western world versus the Eastern world, not the Asia world, not the Asian world, or the world of the Orient, to use old terminology, but the Western, beginning in Western Europe, and the Western world, which is where we live. So anytime I say that, I don't mean horses and cowboys and guns, okay? So the modern West was, first of all, colonial, and there was a colonial culture. When the U.S. was being populated by Britain, It wasn't the US when the colonies were being populated. It was a colonial progression. They were trying to create British culture in America. That's why you have a place like New York, because there's a York in Britain. And so when they came here and we went, I want a York like the one we used to have. We'll call it New York, or New Jersey, or New Hampshire, because there's a Hampshire in Britain They came here and they said, I want that one over again. And so all that idea and all that um, culture gets transplanted. That's the colonial spirit, is to take our culture and just put it someplace else. And that's what started. And then we go from a colonial culture to an agrarian culture, where the predominant economic structure, the predominant um, social structure was based around an agrarian, um, society is anybody here from an agrarian background a farmer background uh, like a, yeah so if you if you still get a chance to do this it still exists it's in super microcosms in contemporary um, United States but it's just hard to find an agrarian culture where people work together I have a friend he is uh, he just joined our church his name is Truett in fact, he was baptized like three weeks ago. Um, we have these um, spontaneous baptisms. They're not too spontaneous because I fill the tub and heat the water. But they're spontaneous in that nobody knows that until we get there. And I'm standing in the water and I say, who's God calling? Who's God working on? Which is really fun. I can talk about it with you sometime. But Truett is 6'5 and is about 380. I mean, he's huge. And he just started coming to our church. And, I was, and, and he takes part of his vacation every year to go back to his family who live in Kansas they raise sunflowers and he goes back for harvest because he loves the harvest, he loves being there because there's a culture that he misses there's something about being together and he said literally they all just work in each other's farms and harvest together just in this huge community, this huge society, it's its own culture. Well that was the culture of early America, it was an agrarian culture and It had subcultures, it had problems of subcultures, and then that gave way to an industrial era. In the industrial era, there was still agrarian, there still is, it's just, it got industrialized, and industrialization replaced man hours. And instead of using slaves, you would use a harvester, or a combine, or instead of using manpower, you would use a machine. And that built its whole own culture, An industrial culture. I was born at the end of the industrial culture. I was born in 1961. My grandfather, my grandpa, who died when I was 10, was one of the original designers of the current Ford V8 engine. That's my grandpa. It's just not that long ago. And that, you know, Ford in America is like a mark of industrialization. And it created Detroit, it created the steel belt, it created the need for those raw materials right there. It created its whole own culture. And all the time I was growing up, business was called industry. It wasn't called business. It wasn't called commerce. It was called industry. And then that changed to an information age. And I'm a child of the information age. You are not. You are. (laughs) We are. (laughs) But the rest of you are not. Uh, The information age was a change away from industry and into the idea that ideas actually are worth money not just stuff, not just something you can make, but the idea behind it is the the stuff of business. And it created its whole culture. That's the culture that I grew up in. You grew up in a digital world, in a world of ones and zeros. You grew up in a binary world. Um, And it's not so much computation and computers as it is, the internet. Your computer would basically be worthless to you, or should I say your phone, because most of you use your phones more than you use your computers, uh, would be worthless to you if it didn't have connectivity to the rest of the world. That's predominantly what we use them for, and it becomes a window, our access port into the rest of the world. And it's created its whole own culture. Uh, In fact, I was watching GMA this morning while I was packing to come over here and they kept using the word trending, not talking about Twitter, but just talking about things that are like on the rise. We used to say, it's on the rise or this is happening right now. But because of Twitter and trending on Twitter, we now use the word trending to start to describe things that are on the rise. We're just taking it from this application and applying it to culture at large. So when we start talking about culture, we need to understand that, again, culture is something you make by the time you know, that, that you're involved in, in living, and it is something that is making you. So if you grew up, let's just say we all are in New York in 1780, and it's kind of the end of the colonial period. And it is, um, or the middle, uh, actually, of the colonial period. What would you think would be important to you? If you can picture yourself in the middle of the colonial period. Like how would you spend your average day? What kind of things would you do? Let me remind you, there's no running water. There is not yet electricity in 1780. I mean, it exists, it's just not readily available. (laughs) Like you can't plug into something. Um To heat your house, you use the stove. Ooh, why does that matter? No, that is the beginning of an answer, but not an answer. Because you would have someone else to do it for you. Right? If you were the Laura end, it would matter a lot because you could all answer. Yeah. That's exactly right. Is that true now? No, I see homeless people all the time. Um, I didn't bring, oh yes, I did. See homeless people holding a sign that they need food like this. (laughs) Like, dude, that's an oxymoron. (laughs) You're holding a $650 phone and a cardboard sign saying that you need food. Sell your phone, right?
0: Some homeless people were given
1: their phones. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying we don't live. In this massive change of a slave culture, which is exactly right, depends on who we are in that society. So that's something that's different than our society now, which you pointed out very well. How else would you be spending your time? Let's just say that you're not a slave, you're the child of a local blacksmith. What would you be doing, probably? Pardon?
0: or you probably be married Yep, you would, you'd be <laughs> married. Yeah. You would just constantly be doing things that were productive and you wouldn't, uh there was nothing to do where you could sit
1: there and do feel like you'd always have to be doing something that would go the bed or something. Yeah, whatever you didn't do today would keep you from living tomorrow. So you have to do stuff today. You have to plant, you have to weed, you have to nurture your garden you have to take care of the pigs, you have to take care of, there's no refrigeration. So if you want chicken for dinner tomorrow, you gotta go get the chicken. And if you want him tomorrow, you gotta make sure that he's still alive today, right? So you have to keep that happening. So we do ministry in Guatemala. I think I've referred to that before which is like several steps back from here. <laughs> it's so interesting to just step back in time, literally by just changing locations. And it's not all of Guatemala, it's where we go in Guatemala. We live while we're there in a really nice place and it's comfortable. And then we drive 50 miles to a place I wouldn't want to stay, you know what I'm saying? Because I've stayed there before and you just sleep on the ground and get bitten all night. And it's, it's worth 50 miles to drive back. So, we step into a place where people literally get up when the sun rises. They go take care of their property, their, their uh, crop, which is usually beans or corn, and they do that until they have to go to work and they're walking, or the rich ones in Coyolate, where we work, have a motorcycle, which is hilarious to see a family of five like, on a 175. I mean, but they do it, it's amazing. And they just <laughs> drive, and their kids hanging off all over the place. Like, <laughs> um, it's just amazing. I don't know how they do it. And there's inevitably a mom holding a baby. Um, so then, and then you go to work, and they would work like in Koyo Latte, Most of the men work in the sugar field. They make two dollars for a day of work, and they work literally all day. They take a time in the middle of the day where they come home on their little motorcycle, or they walk, or they take one of the Company buses, they come back and they have a meal with their family, siesta, a couple hours in the middle. But I had never seen anybody sleep during that time. They're all working so hard. And then they go back to work. And they come back just in time to make dinner, eat dinner, do a couple things around the house, sleep the, you know, sweep the, the dirt off the dirt, and go to bed and do it again the next day. Everything they do, they do to survive. And if you were born there, in Coyolate, Guatemala, that would just be completely normal to you. That's just what you would do. It wouldn't even dawn on you to sit down and just relax. It just, it just wouldn't even dawn on you. So what I'm trying to say in all of this is, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about culture. Culture is a, a, a thing that makes you, and it's a thing that we all make. They're on their way, they're changing, they're going from being agrarian to being industrialized. From being industrialized, they already have this stuff, they just don't know what it's for. A lot of them have phones, but they just make phone calls. They don't text, they don't tweet, they don't do anything like that. They just use it to communicate. So, what I wanna do in our time together this week is to talk about our culture, and the markers of the sub, cultures that make our culture. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just the time that we have. I tried to pick what I felt like was the most important for us and the most identifiable for us. So these are cultures within our culture. You have philosophical culture, which is the realm of why people think what they think. And there is a culture that is determining that for you. There's a culture that is determining what teachers are gonna teach. There are six companies that own all the media in the Western world. Six companies own all the media. That is all the newspapers, all the television channels, all the news channels, all the internet news feeds. Six companies own all of it. And they are determining what we think, how we think, how we process based on what we watch and what we listen to. That's philosophical culture. Technological culture is the way um, what we touch and how we live affects the way we perceive the world. For example, me coming here is a possibility even though I live really, really close. If we were still back in 1780 and I was gonna teach at the coast living 80 miles away, I would have had to plan this trip a while ago. And I probably wouldn't come for five days. Because it would take me so long to get here. But it didn't take me long at all at 55 miles an hour or thereabouts uh, It doesn't take that long to get here, um, but that is a technological reality. And so I, act, I literally gauge my time based on a technology that's readily available to me. So if you've had a car or you have a car, and then for some reason all of a sudden you didn't have a car, I don't know if that's happened to any of you. It's happened to me. It totally changes your reality. All of a sudden, you have to start thinking about how you're going to get somewhere and how long it's going to take you on the bus to get somewhere, which can be wonderful unless you don't have much time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. It's really easy where I live. So, technological culture is a culture, and it helps shape our culture. Political culture is its own culture. For example, you live and have been raised in a free democracy. You don't understand what it is to have a tyrannical king or to have a um, um, a horrible um, president who took over your country by military force and you live in constant fear. None of us know what that's like. Our precursors do, but we don't know what it's like. We live in a very particular political culture. However it's not the best but it is the way we shaped it and it is shaping us. Scientific culture goes very close with philosophic culture and the scientific idea of the world, the scientific perspective of the world is its own culture and they maintain their culture very well but it informs and shapes our culture. Economic culture has changed radically. I mean, I'm old enough to remember my dad giving me a quarter and a gallon can and telling me to go to the gas station and get it filled. That's how old I am. <laughs> and that's how much. I was so thrilled today to fill my tank for two fifteen, and nine tenths per gallon. I mean, that for me, that was exciting because I drive a big truck and so anytime I can get the gas cheaper. But I mean, I can remember. So, Our economy has changed radically. Our economy has continued to snowball in this amazing consumer reality. Artistic culture is definitely a culture of its own, but it's not outside of all the rest of culture. It is part of culture, and it actually informs culture. What you wear is part of artistic culture. What you have imprinted on your skin, what you listen to, um, the way you decorate your, your abode, whatever it is, a room or a house or I mean um, what, what you do around you is part of artistic culture and it is partly determined by technology, is partly determined by economics. I mean, These are cultures that interlace with each other and then religious culture of course is its own culture. This is the one that makes the most sense of us because we're part of a part of religious culture and we see how it impacts the rest of regular culture. We're not actually going to get to ecological culture you can count there's eight of these Uh, when i started doing this there were eight sessions so we're not going to talk about that one but it is its own culture and it's a rising culture that is trying to take us back to some of what we lost in the industrial revolution so any questions about the markers this is our week this is what we're going to go through so if you're bored now boy you're in trouble bring on the coffee um because what we're going to do is take each of these apart and talk about what philosophical culture is how it's formed and shaped and what makes it happen because you need to know what it is so that you can redeem it. You need to know what it is and how you can live in this world in a way that people who are caught in the lies of philosophical culture can still find hope and light in Jesus Christ. And so that's what's what's next is the false gods that are worshipped in each of these cultures. So within philosophical culture... And I put idea idolatry because I didn't want to put idolatry because it's an idea that could be OK. But it's gotten a new status in its culture. And post-modernity or post-modernism has a status in philosophical culture that is displacing uh, or yeah, redefining the nature of meaning. Informationism as a, um, a false idea or ideology within technological culture and the what's lost in technology based on just the pure value of information. Pragmatism, which seems like a good thing until it's an end in itself, which is the problem, I think, in our political culture. Our political culture justifies all kinds of means <laughs> based on a presupposed end of pure pragmatism. Naturalism or scientism or reductionism as the the pseudo-gods of scientific culture. Consumerism and capitalism as the pseudo-gods of economic culture. Individualism as a pseudo-god of artistic culture. And institutionalism and imperialism as pseudo-gods of religious culture. So if that just sounds like a lot of isms, that's exactly what it is. And we'll unpack them I just want you to understand the broad strokes of where we're going. We're going to look at these different cultures, and then we're going to look at the ideas within the cultures that are bad. They're bad for us, they're bad for culture. they're bad for people in culture. And these are the places that we can get stuck. These are the places that the church gets stuck along the way. In fact, that's the next part here is these theological pitfalls. As the church tries to interact with the culture, what ends up happening? Where is the compromise made, for example, in postmodern, in philosophical culture where the postmodern ideology gave birth to liberalism in America? And we'll talk about why that is. Liberalism didn't happen because conservatives weren't strong. Liberalism didn't happen because um, people didn't like righteousness. Liberalism happened because of philosophical culture in the Western world. Modernism is a theological pitfall within technological culture. The idea that if it's modern, it's better, (laughs) which is the technological truth. I mean, my son, whom I love dearly, I'm not maligning him. He has a beautiful Samsung something. I don't know what his phone is. It's an Android of some kind. And he just said yesterday, I really need an iPhone 6. I was like, we're not even done paying for your phone yet. How could you possibly need one? And he said, oh, the camera's so much better. That's it? Yeah. Well, here, use mine, because that's what I have. Um, you know, but this whole idea that if it's new, it's better, that's the problem in technology. Liberation theology as a theological pitfall in political culture. And, I, and I'll, just, I, I'll just tell you, I'll explode all of these for us, and we'll get through them. For me to give you a short definition right now, when you're already tired and we're getting close to the end, doesn't really help. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. So here's the payoff for us, is these words of redemption. This, this gets to the point of living in between. This gets to the point of how we're going to make a positive difference and a positive impact in all these subcultures that make up secular culture. These are words that you should recognize, right? You know these words. These are not isms. These are not philosophical words. These are words we know. And, and maybe we're just kind of used to them. Maybe they're just like $2 wor- words in Western Christian culture. But these have great redemptive value if we can seize them and use these I- ideas, these concepts, to impact these subcultures and their... Their false ideas. So this is where I want us to get in each one of these sessions, is to make sure that we're getting to this idea that we could actually speak words, these words, of redemption into these subcultures. Because just like you guys were saying, what culture is, is people. How you redeem a culture is one person at a time. And how you redeem somebody caught in Political culture or economic culture or technological culture means understanding these words in a way that gives us a real handle, a way to grasp people caught in the vortex of our culture and give them another idea. Expose them to the realities of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus did so beautifully. And Paul did so beautifully in uh, the book of Acts in uh, chapter 17, Um, And I, 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 is it in your notes? I think I I just wrote the whole thing out there. Let me just say that he walked into a culture, a very strong culture, a philosophical culture, a political culture that was nothing like his. He walked into the heart of Greek culture. And though he is Roman and Greek, he is first of all Jewish. And he walks right into the center of, like the high center of Greek philosophy and is given an opportunity, literally the podium, the podium. And he uses very careful words. He doesn't talk like this in any other place. He doesn't write like this any place else. Only while he's at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in the center of Athens. He recognized the culture he was in and he spoke just exactly the right words. And people, literally philosophers, the heart of Greek classical philosophy came to Christ that day because of what Paul said completely embroiled in philosophical culture. And he had the right words, the right redemption. And here's where it comes, comes down. In verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And you guys have all heard the sermon on this, that the Greeks were just covering their bases, making sure that even though they didn't get all the demigods, if they didn't, there was got to be one that they could just say, Hey, Mr. No-Name to the unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And he picks this perfect platform within their own philosophical structure and tells them about who Jesus Christ is. So I put this picture. It's not abnormal. It's one of those like mid-air Google shots. That's my church. Um, The building, not the people. And my car is not there that day. And this is my people. This is my culture. This is my surrounding. I've been at this church for 23 years. I know the people who walk across our parking lot. I know the people who live across the street in Summit. I know the people who live across the street over here. I know the people who live over here in Jefferson 1. There's just coyotes and deer in here. (laughs) And I know some of them. But um, this, this is my... This is my place, this is my culture, this is where I wanna see redemption happen and all these people in all these houses. And these are not just huge houses, these are apartments. (laughs) You're like, wow, that's your church. Either it's very small or these are huge houses. But these are all apartments right here. Those are huge houses. Um, These people are all caught in culture and they need the light of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. This is my Athens. This is where I try to speak the words of God in a way that makes sense to people right where they are. And that's what I'm hoping to do this week. Let me pray. Jesus Christ so loved the world that he left heaven, put on flesh, and spoke (laughs) not in the ethereal language of heaven, but he just spoke Koine, common Greek. He spoke Aramaic. He spoke Hebrew, just the words of people. And he rubbed shoulders with soldiers and with farmers, tax collectors, fishermen, just normal people. But he came to a place that was its own culture at an incredible time of change. And he brought redemption. And then when he was leaving, he brought his friends close and he said, I'm, not coming to, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may, too, be truly sanctified. You've set us apart. Give us the wisdom. Shape our hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen.